This is the strategy inside everything. I'm Adam Pierno. All right, welcome back to another episode of The Strategy Inside Everything. This one's been a long time coming. Uh, today's guest is Gunny Scarfo, who is the founder of Nonfiction. Uh, he's got an interesting history in, in the industry, and uh, we've been exchanging emails trying to get this set up. Gunny, thank you so much for making time for me today. I'm thrilled to be here, and uh, I've picked up two of your books in the meantime and listen to most of the podcasts. So I'm uh, more excited than, than you might know. Oh, that's really cool, man. Thank you. I, I really appreciate that. And I'm, I actually found we're in a mutual admiration society, I think, because uh, before you reached out to me, I had been spending time with some of the work of nonfiction. Uh, the intimacy in America study that you guys did in particular was, yeah. was what I found. And once I found that, I was like, what the hell is happening at this company? And what else have these people done? <laughs> as a justified reaction. It's, it's, well, let's get into it. But before we do that, I want the people who are not as familiar with you and your work to have a sense of who you are and kind of what you've done in your career up to now. Would you mind giving us a little background? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I'm the co-founder of Nonfiction Research along with Ben Zeidler, who was previously uh, global head of CPG research at uh, Scott Galloway's firm, L2, and then went into Gartner. Um, my background is in strategy. I was the head of strategy at Vice Media's uh, digital agency, and before that, head of strategy with Ben uh, at a digital agency that got bought by a digital agency, which got bought by a digital agency, which is now Accenture Interactive. <laughs> Rushing nesting uh, dolls. Yeah, I always joke that I just sat in one chair for like seven years, and they just changed the sign, you know, behind me. Um, but throughout that run, my focus in my own work and in the teams that I led has always been on uncovering what I'd call uh, uncensored insights, meaning insights into people's lives that they might not normally talk about to their friends and certainly not to a market researcher. You don't have a lot of people pausing you in the middle of a market research conversation saying, oh, one moment, let me go get my diary so you can truly understand the contours of my soul. <laughs> um, and, you know, to, to me and to Ben, that's just always something that made us feel like if you're not getting that sort of stuff in the research, that's something that should scare the shit out of anyone who's actually paying for market research and then basing uh, large decisions off of it. So in, in founding nonfiction, we really wanted to take more of a, a rogue approach the way we had been doing uh, over the years. Um, and that's, that's really two parts. One is finding a way to form more intimate connections with the people that we're studying. Um, and then also going anywhere it takes to truly understand people's real experiences. So we've been unchaperoned inside of a prison. We've been undercover. We've spent time with male and female escorts. We've built our own software programs, like whatever it takes to, to get at that and to understand someone's uh, true lived experience is is what we want to do, and I, I guess the, the the second half of that is maybe what brings us the most notoriety, um, which is the sort of unusual stuff with I don't know bank robbers and whatnot. Uh, but the truth is that the first part of that is just as important to our, which is the intimate stuff. And, and um, you know, at the beginning of founding nonfiction, 
I would say there was some question among <laughs> uh, our colleagues and maybe even like investors uh, as to like how much of an appetite there is for uh, within corporate America. Yeah, well, to, that was that's my first question, Gunny. Is yeah. uh, like what I've seen from nonfiction has been published studies that are incredible research presented in a very disarming way that that pulls you in almost like um, it's it's creative content. And what I what I was one, but one thing I've noticed is that you don't skimp on the methodology slides either at the at the back of the deck or throughout you're citing methodology, you're citing the the science behind what you're doing. You're, you're giving information on the sample. How much for I know you mentioned Ben came from CPG. Yep. How much are traditional businesses interested and willing to tolerate the kind of work that you want to do? Thankfully for us, um, some of them are, and also thankfully for us, the ones who aren't um, tend to disqualify themselves pretty quickly. <laughs> when you work with nonfiction, you kind of know what you're getting. So, um, yeah, I mean, the first of all, thank you for saying that about the methodology. Like, we have a a term that we apply to everything that we do, whether it's for clients or something we're publishing. Uh, publicly that we want it to be methodologically unassailable mm -hmm. um, because especially when you're doing some of the stuff that we're doing it's easy for people to see it as being sensationalist when in reality it's just kind of what we're doing to go on a, a deeper level but um you know the the research has been picked up by axios msnbc fox news cnbc abc and so forth and Client-wise, um, we've really had great working relationships with uh, Disney, AIG, Viacom, uh, a bunch of nonprofits, um, a couple of large pharmaceutical companies that are looking to understand the emotional experience of both patients and doctors treating rare diseases. Oh, that's so, interesting. Um, yeah, I mean, our we we think that the whatever modicum of success we've fallen into has really been uh, more than about us, but more about sort of what we believe and the primary ethos, which is that I think a lot of people look at the research that they have and they feel like, you know, it looks professional. There's graphs and stuff there. And like, you know, you don't necessarily challenge the methodology, but it also doesn't feel like it penetrates to the, to the core of the people who are buying the product or using the service, whatever it might be. So, you know, I think for us, uh, a lot of the clients that we've worked with privately have seen one of the things that we've done that you mentioned, the intimacy study, the secret financial lives of Americans, these kinds of things. And they've basically said, we want that kind of thing, but for our audience. And for no. us, in addition to being thrilled to be able to work with these companies, it's heartening because you realize like there really is this, this hunger out there for um, for sort of deeper, more uncensored insights. Yeah, I, and do they come to you for that total package, the mixture of qual and quant that you that you bring together? Because most most firms, most vendors that that succeed are specialized usually in one or another. They can do they can they they're exceptional at doing qualitative research and you know getting to those insights from talking to people, or they're exceptional at quant and really understand the science. But usually not both, and definitely not presenting it, bringing it to life the same way you guys do. Yeah, we 
we don't even think of it in those terms. I mean, obviously there are things you have to do really differently in qual and quant um, methodologically. Um, but I'll tell you the way that we approach it is that uh, we always want to start with uh, what people would call qual um, because we feel like when you start with quant, you tend not to ask the questions that you would ask had you already gone deep into people's lives. Mm -hmm. um, and if you just do the qual, you end up coming back with potentially really interesting insights, but you have little ability to size or segment the truth of what you found. Totally. So, you have a collection of good anecdotes. That's it. That's it. And, uh, you know, we can't tell BlackRock to change what they're doing with a hundred million dollars worth of, uh, marketing budget because some guy named Jerome in a one-on-one -on -one interview told us to something or other. So, you know, we, we always like to go, uh, deep and experiential, um, and intimate first, and then wrap it up by really understanding, uh, to what extent people agree or disagree with the stuff that we found that we have found in those more intimate conversations with the quant and at, in every single project we work on, we enter the quant with multiple hypotheses and we discover that at least one of them is wrong, which is a good test for research as to like whether you're, you know, jerry rigging your own opinions into there or whether you're actually floating multiple possible things and seeing which ones actually play out. That's, that's interesting. Now, when we were getting started, we had to cut the video for, uh, bandwidth reasons. And you, you remark that when you conduct interviews for your projects for research, you, you prefer no video, which, and I, I was commenting that I think the video for these types of conversations actually helps. Could tell me, tell me why. Yeah. Like internally, when we have meetings, you know, we use the video, um, like within our company, but when you're talking to a stranger, um, the single most important thing that you can do in a research interview is to make a quick, genuine, intimate connection where the person feels like you are not a doctor with a, in a white coat with a clipboard notating their answers <laughs> and checking off boxes, but they're speaking to a real person who um, has gone through stuff that they might have gone through. And, um, and so for us, we find really intimate connections without the video when it's just a voice on the other end of the line. And you are, you are these two voices talking from across a continent or across the globe and uh, almost in darkness. And there's, a, there's an intimacy that can come out of that um, that we really like. And we often find at the end of our calls, um, you, you, you go so deep with a person that at the end, you know, the traditional thing to say is something like, all right, thanks. Uh, talk to you later or uh, talk to you again soon. But it's almost like this screeching train at the end of a good one-on-one -on -one research interview where you both are almost pulled out of a trance and come to the mutual recognition that the two of you who have shared things that maybe you've never shared with any other person in your life now will never talk again. I mean, it's, it's almost like a, a, like a summer camp romance or something like that, <laughs> right? Where like you have this like fast, immediate connection and then you kind of like, like, well, okay, uh, I'll, 
I'll, I'll write you letters. Well, how do you, so that's it. I know everything you do doesn't come from, from those types of interviews. I know you get to the insights from a variety of, of methods, but the subject matter that you, that you publish on behalf of nonfiction, financial secrets, intimacy, um, emotional, uh, needs and wants that yeah. those are not easy to get to. I mean, how do you get people to feel relaxed and relieved enough to, to exchange with you? I think there, there is an element of technique to it, but a lot of it is not technique. You just can't fake it. Um, there, there are elements of it with technique where when we start calls with people, um, we are intentionally really casual. We tell them what we're up to. Um, if we can get someone to laugh before we even start asking them questions, or if we can make a connection with them, uh, like about something trivial, like what is the city that they live in or some hobby or something that we might know. Um, like that, that's technique, I'd say. And that's, we have like a really uh, specific training course that anyone who comes to work at nonfiction goes through around one-on-one interviews. But the truth of it is, um, I don't think you can teach it to someone who doesn't genuinely um, care about other people, who doesn't... Um, is that is that empathy or is it just some kind of underlying ability to, to want to research and want to know more? It's a curiosity, I guess. I, I think it's empathy. Um, I think you're right. It's, it, it goes beyond like pure curiosity because, um, the, as you said, like the stuff that, we're, that we talk to people about is so so personal and so deep. I mean, we did a project uh, last year um, that was sort of around like potential new directions for the women's movement. And uh, the things that we were talking to women about, um, it was the first time or one of the first times that we got a survey results back uh, and we just broke down into tears like individually over some of the stuff that we read um, we had the same thing for for the intimacy report, but like when you ask questions like, uh, "What is the least powerful you've ever felt as a woman?" You are going to surface uh, parts of people's lives that are uh, hard to talk about, and um, you know when you ask people about having cried because they didn't have enough money at the time, or uh, when you ask people when you're asking people about uh, the ways in which they are or are not satisfied in their lives, um, you're, you're going to get into a lot of that stuff. And so I think one of the things that helps is empathy, as you said. Um, and then the other thing is having uh, gone through things yourself. So one of the things we look for in mm. anyone that we bring on board is that you have a, you have a diversity of good and bad experiences in your life and you're, you're, you're close to them. So uh, I, I always remember uh, when I was at Vice, there was one night we were, a few of us were up late working on a project and um, uh, I started talking to the creative director about um, uh, the feelings around how my father had passed a few years earlier. And he was talking about feelings about having lost uh, a child um, and the, the third part of our team was a much younger guy and I could just see, he was like, not ready for this conversation. Yeah. And, you know, it's, 
you can't help it either. You've been through the, that kind of stuff or you haven't, but yeah. And you're not you comfortable. You're not comfortable with it until you've touched it. That's it. That's it. It's like a secret society where you are able to relate to people better um, after you've been through s- some of those things. And so it, it makes it a little bit easier. How, so it's, it's really, I find it, um, when I think of some of the best researchers I've worked with, there is a, an element of that clinician, someone that can detach themselves. And you made a joke about the white lab coat. I've never uh, worked with anybody quite that far along, but I have worked <laughs> with plenty of people that say like, well, you know, subject in, subject out. Here's the, here's the information. Here's what we learned and, and able to be separate from us. Do you think the output that you produce looks a hell of a lot different than a lot of research that I've consumed, but is the process that much different? Are the people, is, does the nonfiction team look that much different from other firms? Yeah, I think it's a little bit of, of all of that. Um, the, obviously like when we hire, like the, the number one thing we ask is like, is this person nonfiction-y? And uh, internally, we, we know what that means. Um, uh, but I, I would say, like, there's there's a, a point where you have to do all the things we've been talking about, about, like, empathy and being inside of people's lives and, like, trying to, to feel what they feel. Uh, but there's another part of the process where you have to then step back and ask, as you alluded to, like, is that something that that a lot of people are feeling. And when it comes to the quantitative part of what we do, we have to be brutal uh, in um, making sure that we are more clinicians, even though our surveys feel really intimate still, um, the way that we translate that data has to, has to be the, the right way to do it. And we have to we're constantly like, challenging ourselves and trying to beat things up internally. Because uh, we live in like, I'm not even saying this is a, a good thing. Like we live in abject terror that <laughs> something's gonna like be wrong in what we do, that we're gonna be in a room. So, so it's a, uh, it's a, a shift yeah. in modes. It's, there's a mode where you're the empathetic interviewer and, and then there's a mode where you shift into clinician mode and you're hardcore killing the data to make sure that it is not flawed. It has to be. It has you can't to get be. pants. It's, there's nothing worse than that. <laughs> that's right. I love that term. We're going to start using that now. That's um, what I used yeah, to call that's... it with my strategy team. If you were presenting, if you were presenting strategy based on data, and the client would find some flaw that you missed, I would call it getting pants. Yeah. Yeah, it's getting pants, and that that is our uh, like paranoid fear. Um, but I think a lot of people who work in strategy, a lot of your listeners and a lot of um, the other folks you've had on the podcast would would tell you that like the reason all of us got into this was for both of those things, right? And modern account planning or strategy or whatever we call it, um, maybe it doesn't live up to all the time, like what we hoped it would be. But I think the reason that people like you and like me and like your listeners get into this field um, really has to do a lot with like understanding people and understanding like the human parts of that, but then being able to step back and do productive things um, that are smart and that uh, are able to 
help companies help people. Um, and it's impossible to divorce that from them being able to do so in a way that's financially sustainable. So yeah. you need both of those brains, as you were saying. And let's talk about the um, playlist research that you did, because it's a compelling. I'm interested in knowing how you melded the qual and the quant here and how much background. I know there, I know there are references to interviews in the, uh, in the published piece that you shared with me. Um, yeah. but the, the general background is that just from the titles of playlists that you could find publicly, uh, music playlists that you can glean a lot of how people are feeling and what they're aspiring towards, which was, as soon as I read that, I'm like, Oh man, I, I <laughs> I'm in. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, you, you described it perfectly. You know, we, we started the whole study with a really simple question, which was, if you could see a person's music playlist, would it deepen your understanding of them? Did you, you know, start like, with that question or did you start with some results? I, did you read a playlist title or something and, and get to a foregone conclusion that now you were trying to backfill and learn more about? No, I mean, this, this was the most, um, uh, not in all good ways. This was the most, uh, like uncertain we've ever been going into a research project of what might come out of it. It actually started, would st it actually started and, uh, nobody knows this, but it was a, our original topic that we wanted to study was ways in which music has saved the lives of people who were thinking of ending their life. Oh, wow. Um, and then you do, you do, heavy. yeah. And you do touch on that in the study. I mean, that's, we do. That is um, almost frightening to embark on. Yes, it really is. Um, and, you know, that's something you really have to treat with the utmost amount of seriousness and respect. Um, but when we, when we started doing that study, we just ran into problems like uh, in terms of like the size of that audience and what we could conclusively say and how applicable it was to everyone's life. And so, uh, I mean, we had a point where we stopped working on it and then thought like, okay, how, how else could we take this? And then along that process of looking into how music has hit people's lives, we realized the importance of music playlists so then we asked the question, okay, if we back off of that topic and we just ask, if you could see people's music playlists, would it deepen your understanding of them? And we, you know, we had the sense that it would, but we didn't know how. Um, and if you could see the playlists of a whole nation, like what would that tell you about the nation? So the way that we went about it, because there's no, you know, Mintel doesn't publish that data. So we <laughs> not yet, not until they read your not study. Yet. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, so we we built our own software program from scratch to go out and crawl Spotify playlists, uh, public Spotify playlists, um, and bring it back. And we built an entire database of tens of thousands of Spotify playlists that we could then query and look at and examine and try to figure out what was going on. I think the, the obvious thing that we found that we knew that we would find that everyone would know that you would find is that people use music playlists to improve their mood. So uh, as you saw in, in the actual report, we saw a lot of 
Spotify playlists called uh, Calming Cat Music or uh, Making Mondays Better or Cooking Dinner with Bay. And uh, that part I think was, was pretty expected. Um, although it felt really good to see like uh, the vernacular in which people were were talking about these things. You it was really it's, like it really their lives. Yeah, it's really interesting. I've done a lot of social intelligence and social listening, and this having this context really helps make it meaningful. A lot of social listening is is wasted because it's so broad. You don't, you, you don't really have any context, but this creates an instant context when what's the one that's like feeling my biceps, feeling them biceps or something, yeah, right. but, but reading just the ones that you on several slides of this presentation, you, you list some of the standout names. And I spent a lot of time reading that list and really trying to get into this, the mindset of people that were creating them because you and I probably, I'm assuming you spent some time in Nashville. So I'm assuming you have a love for music like I do. For sure. Um, the naming of the playlist is can be something just off the cuff or it can be something really, really meaningful. That's insightful. And it's, it's hard to know which is which, how did you, did you create in the software program or the analysis of what you gathered? Did you create some sort of a method for scoring them? We didn't do that because we had the luxury of a quantitative survey afterwards. So while we had a lot of data from Spotify, what we were looking for were essentially uh, uh, a thesis or theses um, that we could then go and size and segment and prove or disprove within the quantitative study. And so when we started to see, um, uh, so first of all, you're, you're right that like sometimes it's hard to read what they meant by the playlist title. And uh, even some of the darker playlist titles, uh, which we'll talk about in a second, um, some of them were uh, very self-aware. So for instance, there was one playlist title called, uh, now excuse me, I need to go take a shower so I can't tell if I'm crying. Yeah. So there's a few that is, there are a few that hit that same note where it's like it could yeah. be sarcastic and self-deprecating or it could be serious uh, signal of emotional trauma. Yep. Um, like I I think about uh, there's one called my grief, my infertility, which is not very ironic. Um, and uh, so I guess what we did was we tried to do our best to understand the context by looking at the playlist title, but we also had a lot of times a playlist description, um, which we didn't put into the report itself, but it helped us contextualize what that playlist title was about. And then you can also tell by looking at the songs, are the songs ironic or are the songs really uh, heartfelt? Um, and I, I think the, the thing that we saw that really jumped out at us was that you would expect people to use their Spotify playlists to pump themselves up, you know, to, to, to get hyped up, uh, to, 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 to get the swagger before they go into work or go into a sports match or whatever it might be, um, or just to calm down. But we were, um, we were impacted deeply by the amount of stuff that we saw of people creating playlists to hunt out an experience 
those deeper and darker emotions because that's the part that I don't know is quite as intuitive. And so when later we got into the quant study, we saw that 44% of Americans have listened to music purposely to feel dark emotions. Yeah. You know, and then we even extended that and started asking about things outside of music. And we asked people, have you done something other than listen to music to purposely feel dark emotions? Well, then, uh, yeah, I was so, wondering, I was, you just jumped to my next question because oh, go ahead. I was wondering, there's another study there, isn't there, that you can look at how else they're getting to those same emotions and then plotting media sources to against desired emotional response. That's it, because it's, it goes beyond playlists. Like we stumbled by, by doing the study of playlists, we stumbled upon this thing that goes way beyond music, you know, um, people talk about going to the Facebook of the person that their partner cheated on them with. I saw that. Just to feel that emotion. It's heartbreaking. And, yeah. Uh, and some of them are, you know, like heartbreaking. Some of them are a little more bizarre. You saw the one where somebody said, I hit my wrist bone with a crochet hook. I don't know why. That's like uh, a little more puzzling. Um, Do you think, I, you know, I was reading, you break out some of the emotions by, uh, as a percentage of, of people in the audience that said that they were seeking this. And 6% of people right. said they listen to music to feel evil. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, what on earth? What Did you dive into that more to understand what, what they meant by evil? Was it? No. Uh, what we do is... Um, usually when we go into the, to the quant study, there are a few things that we're pretty sure are going to, you know, be sizable just because we've heard them so much again and again in mm -hmm. social listening, but in the one-on-one -on -one interviews and, and all that stuff. Then there are things that we're, we're curious whether they're going to be sizable or not. And then there are a handful of things that we put in there and we think like, that's eh, probably not going to come back. But if it did come back, uh, that would be a thing, wouldn't it? Um, and the idea of listening to music to purposely feel evil uh, is something that uh, Lindsay Waking, the uh, person who led the research on this, um, Lindsay just had some hunches that she put in that really played out. And 6% isn't, uh, you know, an overwhelming percentage of the American population. But when you hear 6% of Americans tell you that they listen to music to feel evil, um, that's, that's a heavy thing. And it's just a, it's a great example of, um, the way Lindsay's able to really like pull, pull things out of this. When was this fielded? I'm assuming it's all since March. Yes. Um, I'm trying to remember the exact month. Um, but it was, uh, it was this year, it was this year. And so, uh, the, the qual started last year. Um, and then the quant was, you know, within the last few months. Yeah, this would be one that we want to repeat every two or three years to see how it's how it's changing along with the national mood. It's true because you've got the national mood, and then there's also um, something that we think might be going on. Uh, this is the analysis part of the research rather than the pure research part. But what what you see when you see this kind of behavior of people like hunting out the ability to feel the deep and dark emotions is it's not like these people want to be miserable or you want deep and dark emotions 100% of your life. But it 
it represents what we called in the report emotional realism that you're not just looking for the, the happy washed, happy go lucky version of things. Um, you're actually looking to feel the full range of human emotions. And um, we have a hunch that in the same way that we've seen emotional realism grow in entertainment, which is to say uh, in the 1950s or 1920s, you don't have the same like level of uh, emotional realism that you have today in like, this is us, Billie Eilish, um, a juice world, I'd say. Uh, you Now you have that in entertainment and our suspicion, I would say, is that um, that we're going to see the same thing in business culture that whereas today, as you know, like working inside of agencies, uh, there's just a, there's like a circuit breaker that if you go to some emotion that is too deep or too dark, everybody gets nervous and shies away from it. It yeah. comes out of the brief or the creative doesn't get approved or whatever it might be. Um, we think that might change because they're the, the implication out of the research that we find most interesting is that there is an appetite for emotional realism that exceeds what we're getting from advertising, from our HR departments, from the products and services that we're being sold. Oh man, so, it's, it's uh, you're not getting it from almost anywhere that's outside of your own head. I'm sorry. You you don't get emotional realism from almost anything that's outside of your own head right now. You know, besides the art that right. you choose, it's it's just not accessible. That's right. And so now that uh, it's more acceptable in popular media, uh, it makes you feel less alone. Um, mm -hmm. uh, and you'd have to think we have a country full of companies, nonprofits, governmental organizations that purport to be dedicated to authentically connecting with their customer or uh whatever their, their client or whatever the, the entity might be. But they're only using a portion of the emotions that that person feels to actually understand them and to actually uh, provide for them and to service them. You, you, we, we would hope that over time, businesses, governmental entities, nonprofits, like anything professional uh, would start to adapt and to be able to serve people better by allowing emotional realism to come into the company. But of course, that's gonna change a lot of things. Yeah, that you, you opened a big door with that, with that portion of the study and with, I'm connecting what you're saying now to what you said about training your nonfiction team in how to conduct interviews. And I'm wondering if there's a, a bigger trend at play that you've, that you've tapped into and didn't know it before you even started this study. Uh, that's possible. I mean, for us, it's a necessity, you know, like we can't, we can't afford to not deal in emotional realism because our job is to tell the uncensored story of the lives of the customers of the companies that we're working for. So we, we sort of have to deal in that. Um, and obviously our brand is built upon it. It's like our whole mission, our whole ethos is about that. Um, but I, I hope that what you're saying is right, that we're just um, a, uh, a bellwether um, of something that might be just as relevant for, I don't know, Verizon uh, someday as it would be for uh, an uncensored research company. 
Yeah, I just wonder I, today what's their appetite for, not for, I think you're pushing the door open for them to want the research and want the uh, insights, but then what do they do with it, either internally with their own teams or externally as a communication device? How willing are brands to, how willing are individual people to make the decision to deploy that type of vulnerability or uh, risk uncomfortable conversations? I, I just, I don't know yet. What do you think? Uh, I think it's small and growing probably. I think it's almost like anything else where when companies see other companies doing it, it suddenly becomes not just more acceptable, but almost uh, trendy, which is maybe its own problem. <laughs> but uh, I think our feeling is that the first thing that companies are going to need to do is simply recognize that there is a wave of emotional realism sweeping people's private lives and the music that they listen to do and the playlists that they make and the shows that they watch uh, and the celebrities that they look up to. I mean, when you see uh, celebrities sharing the intimate moments of miscarriage uh, that we've seen in the, the past week, yep. like that's a really emotionally real thing to put out there as a, as an Instagram influencer or whatever. Um, but the first thing is companies are going to need to realize that in a world that has more and more emotional realism, they're going to be more expected to, to deliver that. And that by not doing that, their interactions with employees and customers, are going to see more and more happy watched is the, the term we used in the report. Um, but the second thing that gets at uh, what you were saying is that this isn't gonna be an easy transition for companies because uh, there's, there's no, I don't say no history, but there's relatively little history of emotional realism in the professional sphere. Like it's the opposite, you know, we're like encouraged not to bring that into the workplace or even into the advertising work. Um, and so th the best thing we think companies can do, uh, especially agencies, frankly, uh, but companies in general, would be to set up a lab in which they can experiment with more emotionally realistic advertising, which again, doesn't mean that the spot ends in like some bad feeling. Right. It just means that it's emotionally realistic about how you get there. Um, and so the, the smartest thing we could see is companies and agencies really like setting up private labs where they can just experiment in making uh, media and experiment with HR policies. This kind of seems thing like it's not, now it's you, not real. It's like a practice field, it, especially for media. There, the cost of development for content is this is as low as it's going to get until next month when it gets lower. Right. <laughs> um, to right. to have that kind of lab where you can experiment with how far can you push things. It's it. I, this is the time. It seems like the time is there. Now, HR policies are is a totally different area, but for, for content and messaging and creative and using social to, to test those things, it's, it's like there's no cost of entry for a brand that wants to, is willing to take the risk. That's it. And uh, like every agency should be developing some kind of lab that is uh, studying a particular audience, um, which could be a potential type of buyer or or some kind of demographic and really understanding like 
you know, uh, getting to the emotionally real insights and then trying to develop stuff off of it. Because the truth is, uh, this is going to be done well and it's going to be done poorly, right? Somebody's going to take emotional realism to some messed up place that they shouldn't take it. Uh, or it's going to seem to, they're going to use it in a way that's not genuine. Um, and it's going to immediately rub people the wrong way. There are going to be good ways to do it and poor ways to do it. But to be able to experiment, to develop a new language within advertising that actually addresses 100% of the emotional range of people, um, I think is really exciting. It's really exciting. Yeah, I agree. Um, Johnny, this was fantastic. I, I enjoyed, believe it or not, this is not something people say a lot, but I enjoy reading your research studies. Uh, but I've enjoyed, <laughs> but I've enjoyed you. talking to you just as much because hearing the the insight that goes into developing the study and some other takeaways from them is intriguing to me. Uh, so thanks well, for making time. I appreciate it. I've enjoyed it too. Thank you for the chance. Hey, where can people find you and where can people find nonfiction? Find nonfiction at nonfiction.co. Um, and there's a bunch of our work that's on there. Uh, that's, uh, you know, in-house stuff that we developed that you can download and read for free. This was, uh, this was good. I'm going to go back and spend more time reading some of your other studies because I did not really dive into the, uh, the financial uh, secrets study. So that's something for me to look at this weekend, I think. Well, it goes both ways because uh, as I finish your books, you're going to get another phone call. <laughs> you got it, bud. All, All right. right. Thanks. Nice talking to you. Thanks so much. Strategy Inside Everything is produced by me, Adam Kierno. If you liked what you heard, please leave a review wherever you listen to your podcast. It really helps. If someone shared this with you and you're just not sure where you could find it, you can go to specific.substack.com and sign up there and get episodes before everybody else. For more information about me, Adam Kierno, you can go to adamkierno.com. There's information about my books, my speaking, and my strategy work. Have an idea for a guest? Send it my way. Just go to adampierno.com and you'll find a form there that will help you connect. Thanks for listening. 